That song just about wrecked me. I don't know about you guys. Good morning. It's good to see you guys all here this morning. I first want to apologize for all the dust and the mess that we've had here. We know that it's been uh, a little bit more difficult to deal with as you come to church on Sunday morning. But thank you for uh, enduring through it all. We're trying to get it all done. Uh, but it's a lot of work. And so bear with us. Uh, if you're uh, joining us this morning and you're a guest, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, we hope that we get a chance to meet with you sometime uh, today or if we'll certainly wel- welcome you back next week as well. And if you've joined us online, we're glad you're here as well. Uh, either way. So I'm filling in this week for Pastor Doug. Uh, he's uh, he's going to be preaching quite a bit over the next, I guess, this next week. So I'd ask you to lift him up in, in your prayers as well. So he's going to be working pretty hard through that. And so uh, we're going to continue with the series this week as God is. And uh, Doug has been mentioning through or talking through these messages with us. And he's talked about how God is knowable. He he desires for us to know him and to connect with him. He said that God is Trinity. We spent three weeks on that and how God is uh, is God in in three persons. And we're grateful for that. God is Father and he desires for us to have a deepening relationship with him. And today we're jumping right into the next one, which is God is faithful. So when you think of faithful, you might think of reliable or trustworthy or that you can count on whatever it is you're talking about or thinking about, and you'd be right. But we're going to be talking today uh, and spending our time about how God is faithful, and because he is, we can have hope in him. So Somewhere on the li- on my on my list of favorite movies, I don't know if you guys have a, a list of favorite movies. I've never actually written it down, but if I did, one of my favorite movies that probably be near the top is Shawshank Redemption. Has anybody ever seen that movie? Yeah, there's quite a few. It's a guy's movie, I guess. But it's a great movie. And I know I'm increasingly becoming the old guy in the room because it's like a 1994 movie. And most of you are really not born or really young, but uh, at least, you, you know, you should check it out. I recommend it. It's a great movie. This is the story of Andy Dufresne. He's the wife-killing banker that goes to Shawshank Prison uh, for murder. And if you really think about it, this movie is uh, really an illustration of hope. Hope enters the story kind of early, though it's kind of unnamed, it's quiet, uh, kind of awkward in the beginning. But then hope is introduced formally in the dining area on this film in the prison when Andy is trying to explain to his friends how he spent two weeks in solitary confinement without losing his mind. So just before, Andy had been, he had gotten the privilege of listening to music on a record player. And so I think he's in the guard's office or something to that extent. And he gets the idea that he's going to lock the door and he's going to move the mic to the record player so that everybody in the prison can hear the music. And this is what lands him in solitary confinement. So when he gets, he returns with his friends to the lunch table, 
they are stunned as he sits down and he's smiling. They're like, what, what, what's going on? How, how was it in there? Like, how bad was it? He was like, best time I ever did. He's like, they're like, what? Are you, are you crazy? And, and the, the character Haywood says, they let you take that record player in there with you? He says, yeah, I, I had music with me. I had, he goes like, no, I didn't, I didn't get to take the record player in there with me. I had it in here and in here. And the guys are looking at him like, like he's speaking another language, like he's, he's lost his mind. And, and Andy looks at him and he's like, do you guys not see what, do you not know what I'm talking about? Like, you don't understand what I'm talking about? And Red, the character played by uh, Morgan Freeman, says, oh, you talking about music? He says, I, I, I used to play a, a mean harmonica back in the day. But it never seemed like it made much sense in here. And uh, Andy's like, well, it, this is where it makes the most sense. And so he says, you need something to remind you that there's something that they can't take away from you. He says, you need something to remind you that the world isn't just made of stone and, and metal bars. You need something to remind you that amidst everything, that there's something that, that's essential to you. And they look at him and he's like, they're like, what are you talking about? And Andy Deframe names it. He says, I'm talking about hope. And Red, he replies to him with chastisement and says, be careful, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope will make a man go insane. And you know what? Red's probably right. That's a crazy thing. But but Red's right for the wrong reasons, for the reasons he just doesn't understand. Hope is a dangerous thing. For, you know, it could be dangerous, if, but you don't have to abandon it in such a way, the way that Red has. In fact, abandoning hope will be the thing that will destroy you. Abandoning hope will be the thing that psychologically undermines your identity, your essence, or your life. Hope is a dangerous thing, and you don't have to pretend it's something that you can just abandon because it would destroy you if you did. You probably uh, not may, it may not make you go insane if you if you uh, believe or, or follow something that is uh, maybe wrong, but it but it probably would devastate you. You see, every one of us are hardwired to hope. Hope is the thing that we look to outside of us that we try to connect ourselves to, that we believe will hold us together. Or even better still, hope is the thing that we connect ourselves that we believe that when everything else is drifting away or floating away, that this thing, this person, this event, this reality, whatever it is, will hold me steady. But our true hope, our true hope is in a God, is in God because God is faithful. I want us to look at one of the most powerful and provocative uh, verses in the Bible, I think, in the entirety of the Bible. And I say that kind of laughingly because I think I say that every single time I've ever stood here. But I kind of think that the, the Word of God is pretty powerful. But before we do that, we have a, a creed that uh, Pastor Doug is 
put in motion here for us that we like to do every week. And so it's about what we think about this book. So we say it together, and if you believe what we believe, say it with me and say it like you mean it. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Join with me on in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20 will be our scripture reading for today. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, um, I'd be glad to give you one. See me after church, we'll give you a Bible. All right? Let's start with verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise that the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This verse, in verse 19, the anchor of the soul has been one of the most prominent and predominant throughout Christian history, and yet it's the only place that it appears in the Bible. An anchor of the soul. So what does it mean? What's that look like? Why do we need that? And how does it relate to the faithfulness of God. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning with our t- in our time. And as, as we continue with this series, filling in the blanks uh, for the theology of God and who he is. I'm going to be trying to answer two questions for you this, uh, this morning. Why you can only hope in God ultimately and why God is worthy of being called faithful. It would probably be helpful to deal with some context of some of the uh, the scripture that we just read. It, you know, if you understand what the, the author of Hebrews is doing from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through the end of chapter 6, he's making the point or the statement that Jesus is the ultimate priest. Jesus as a different kind of priest. Jesus is offering us what most long for, which is to draw near to God. And the author is telling us, he's saying, hey, there was this priest way back uh, in the day named Melchizedek, and it's worth knowing him, yes. But Jesus is like him, but he's in similar ways, though obviously superior to him. And Jesus will forever draw us close to God. That's the point that he's making here. Now, he breaks that argument to confront us. He warns us about 
the perils of refusing to hear and obey and trust the word of God. And then he encourages us in the midst of his warning. And then he admonishes us or affirms us. And he says, but then he says, hey, I'd love to talk to you about this more, but your hearts have grown lazy. But he's affirming us. And he wants us to have energy. He wants us to have endurance. And he wants us to have hope. He wants us to patiently receive and practice what it looks like to inherit the promises of God. He's affirming us. He's encouraging us. And he does this through the life of Abraham. Now, Abraham, if you're not familiar with him in uh, with the Bible, he's the heart of the uh, of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, the core of Abraham's narrative. We find that between Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 25. Now, God, God calls this man out of nowhere. He was an idol worshiper. He worshiped countless gods. And God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I got something for you. He shows him that not because of who he is, but who God, who God is, that he will make of him a great nation. Which is ironic for, for Abraham, given the fact that he and his wife had suffered for forever uh, with infertility. But God says, I'm going to give you a family and I'm going to use your family to bless all the families of the earth. Can you imagine that? Like God calls this pagan idol worshiping man and says, hey, I'm going to give you a family, even though you've not been able to produce one, uh, you know, yourself biologically. I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you a family, which means by which all means of all families on the face of the earth will be blessed, blessed. So Abraham doesn't just play a prominent role in the first five books of the Bible, but really the entirety of the Bible. And for all of us that trust in Jesus, Abraham really plays a prominent role in your life. And what the author of Hebrews is doing here in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 6 is he's highlighting a dark moment in Abraham's life, a scary moment in his life. He's highlighting for us that God had promised Abraham to multiply and to give him a family and said he's going to bless all the nations of the earth through his family. And God told him he would make his kids multitudes of nations. But then Time goes by and month after month, and he continues to go through the turmoil of not being able to bear children. And I, I, listen, I don't say that casually. I, by the way, my wife and I, we, we struggled with this for nine years between our first and second child. So we know what that's like. But Abraham here is struggling. Then miraculously, God gives him a son. And he thinks, well, this is the line. This is what's going to advance, you know, my line. But then there's a problem. God comes back to him and says, you know, some years later and says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. I want you to give your son as an offering to me. Can you imagine? I have thought about this so many times. Can you imagine being in that spot for one of your children? But Abraham, in the midst of that, trusted God. He trusted him. 
And the author of Hebrews is using this event in Abraham's life and really the entirety of Abraham's life as a means to encourage us. He's using the example of Abraham's life to make God our anchor. My wife and I, we have a a pontoon boat, and I remember the first time that we went out in the boat, we didn't even have an anchor. Uh, and my wife, she, she will not swim near the shore. She, if she touches the ground, she doesn't want to be there. So we have to stop out in the middle of the lake somewhere because she doesn't want to touch the bottom. It's too icky. And so we jump out and like, I don't know, it feels like it's calm. It's not, you know, wind's not blowing, but the boat just starts going away. And we're like swimming, trying to catch up to it. So pretty quickly I go out and I get us an anchor. And uh, I found out pretty quickly after that that you've got to get an anchor that's big enough and heavy enough and strong enough for your size boat. Or you have a strong rope, too, because I lost the first one I bought. So you have to have, once you buy a good anchor, it's got to be large enough and strong enough to connect into the ground or the rock that's deeply below the water. And so I had to get a long, steady, strong rope and and, uh, anchor. And we saw this too. We went out to South Padre Island uh, the week before last for a little time off. And uh, we saw all these boats and ships and, and like the the front of these things have these massive anchors, anchors on the front of these boats and ships because it's like it's it's a vital part of their boat. Because I may have an anchor for my boat, but the anchor I lean on for my life is Jesus. You know, I you have to have an anchor that's connected to you. You have to an anchor that's connected to you, and it has to go to a place that you can't go. And physicists will tell you that if you look at, if you get an anchor deep in the ground or the rock below, the stability of the ground or the rock below will be transferred to you. All the strength of the ground or the rocks below will be transferred to you if you anchor to them. So here's the question for us. Why make God our anchor? Why hope in God? Because we're... We're always hoping in in something. It's not should I hope or should I not hope. Every single one of us is hoping for something all the time. Now, for some of you, that might be superficial. Like, you know, I really hope Deanna got me something really great for my birthday or Christmas or whatever. But you see, there's a deeper kind of hope when we actually look to something, you know, that's that's stable, that's faithful. We looked for something to hold us down because everything is always moving. Everything is always changing. Everything is always in flux. Am I right? Increasingly in my life, it's hectic. It's not calm, but you have to have something to hold on to to, that's stable in the midst of all the change. Well, what is it for you? Maybe it's your success. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's the performance of your children. Maybe it's your ability to just simply keep moving. 
Or maybe it's just an ability to ignore the change. What are you holding on to at this moment? What is your anchor? And let me offer a few points to you in attempts to persuade you to make God your anchor. Reason number one we should make God our anchor is because he swears by himself. It's like, swear to God. He's like, I just did. That's who I am. You saw that in the text, right? It was there. I'll show you again in just a moment. When we want to intensify something or we, or we assure, assure someone that we're going to keep our word, we make our promises. But we swear by something greater than ourselves, right? Man, I swear on my grandma's grave. Like, I, I swear on the Bible. Even our courts do that, right? It strains the kind of stuff that we will swear on. Like, I swear on the honor of my father. Right? Like, nobody swears on something lame. Like, I remember when I was in high school, I had a 1980 Ford Fiesta. And it was as lame as it sounds. And it was green, too. It was green. I know some of you like green cars. But see, like, I would never go to Deanna and try to give her confidence by, like, saying something like, babe, you don't believe me? Like, look into my eyes. I swear on my 1980 Ford Fiesta that I will be there for you. Right? We don't swear by something lame or small. You swear by something greater than yourself. You swear by something that communicates to another person that it really matters. But the only thing that God has to swear by is himself. You know, Jesus does chastise us about this in Matthew chapter 5. And he's saying, you know, he's saying like, don't be all about this, uh, you know, I swear by the altar. Or I, I swear by the gold on top of the altar. Or I swear on top of the sacrifices on top of the gold of the altar. He's like, it's like, no, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But what happens when you need to... Up to Annie. Well, that's when it gets serious. Like, I swear on my father's grave. Right? But God swears by himself. You know why you should make God the anchor of your soul? Because he is faithful. He is faithful. He swears to God. Don't make someone else or something else your anchor, even if they do swear to God. God acknowledges and swears to himself because there's nothing greater than he is. You see, he made the promise to Abraham. He didn't need to swear because God just does what he says he's going to do because he's faithful. That's what makes him God. In fact, he can't lie because if he, if he lied, he'd violate the truth and then, it, then he wouldn't be God. So if he lied, he would violate his own nature. But he made the promise to Abraham and says, I'm going to do this for you. Though it seemed impossible against all odds, he said, I'm going to do this for you. But because Abraham wavered in his faith, he said, let me show you how serious I am about this. I swear by myself. You know what I love about the author of Hebrews says that God swore to God not to just encourage Abraham, but to encourage you. 
Look at me with me again to verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Like, right, you guys remember an oath? So it says, you know, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Like, right, you know what I'm talking about. He's, God's saying, I swear by myself. What else can you hope for? He is faithful. He cannot lie, because if he lied, he would abandon his own nature. So for God to swear by his own, he says, by my own nature, I will bring to pass all that I have promised for you. That's why we should trust in him. He is faithful. He is our anchor, and he swears by himself. There is nothing greater than him. You know how we should trust God, that he is faithful? Because the fruits of his promises are available to us by faith. You might be saying, now wait a minute now. These promises were to Abraham. Uh, you know, how is this supposed to encourage me? I'm not a Jew. Uh, I'm not a child of Abraham. But see, the Bible makes clear in Galatians chapter 3, the ultimate heir of Abraham was not all the people of Israel. The heir of Abraham, the Bible is speaking of and God prophesied about, is Jesus himself. The one who receives the inheritance of the promises of, uh, made to Abraham, Jesus does. And so Paul is saying here in verse 22 that everyone by faith in Christ, these promises will be given to those who believe. So why should you put your faith in God? Because everything that you've ever longed for is secure in him and sworn by his own name. So you might be asking yourself, well, how can I receive his promises? You know, I could tell you, it says it right in the text, but you receive his promises by running to him. Look at verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The answer is you run to God for refuge. You put your hope in him. You put your trust in him. You lean on him. And in doing so, you're, an, you're adopted as his child. And God is saying for those of us that run to him for refuge, that you will, you will find security in him. He, he is faithful in his promises. Another reason uh, we should put our hope in him is that because he can go where we cannot go. So we're inclined to think that the, the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son uh, into the world to clean up the mess uh, from where we had gone or where we had been. And that's part of the gospel. That's true. But but the full message of the gospel is not only that God sent his son into the world to clean up the mess from where we had gone, but to take us where we long to go, but we cannot go ourselves. Why do we hope in God? Because he has taken us behind the veil. You see that in, in verse 19. But he offers us the kind of hope that goes beyond behind the curtain. He's talking about the day of atonement here. God is faithful in his promises. What would it look like for you 
to hold fast to the to the to God as the anchor of your soul. I mean, the whole point of this text is that God is faithful and he doesn't lie. He swears by his own name and God cannot deny his own nature. His promises are infinitely trustworthy. That's the point. So my question for you is this. What does it look like to believe that? And the the answer is this. It looks messy. It looks like Abraham. Like, do you realize that Abraham is given to us as an example? And that guy made all kinds of mistakes. He had fears. He had doubts. Just like you and me. But the point of his life is that he trusted God. Not perfectly, but he endured in his faith. That would, that's what it would look like to hold fast to God as your anchor. It would look messy, like, like Abraham. It might look sweaty even. You know, like you've got, it just like training does. The author of Hebrews has already given us a picture of that in chapter 5, verse 14. He's talking about training And practice, it looks like work. Because there are times, guys, when our desires don't want to trust him. And there are times, by the way, that we don't want to, there are times, by the way, that we don't want to be faithful to God. Yet, we want God to be faithful to us. We don't want to be faithful to him. He's saying that practicing the faith, the faith isn't easy. It's work. Now, I'm not saying that it takes work to hold on to your faith. The author of Hebrews is saying just the opposite. He is saying your soul is anchored to the one true God and King. Guys, hear me on this. You're not holding on to benefit from the promises of God. You benefit from the promises of God because God himself has anchored himself to you. That's what hope looks like. But it looks like practice. It looks like digging in every day, working at it. Jesus alone endured temptation to the point of shedding blood. What would it look like if we endured temptation to the point of shedding blood? I think we're too quick to submitting to temptation. Doesn't faithfulness to God and holding fast to him mean we commit ourselves to him, to his desires, and to the places where our desires are not in accordance, accordance with his, we work and train and practice to make ours accord with his. What would it look like to hold on to the hope and faithfulness of God? Well, I'm going to give you three practical ways to practice. There's These are not the only three. There are many. These are just Three important ones. There's three ways you can practice. Number one, commit to being at church every single Sunday. If you're not out of town, commit to being here every week. Surround yourselves with his bride and sit under his word. 
every week. And if you're still watching online and you have a practical reason for doing so, that's fine. That's why it's there. Otherwise, commit to being here as God intended. Number two, praise him. Praise him. Lift up your praise and your song and your voice. It doesn't matter what you sound like. That's why we play the music so loud. So we can't hear you. It doesn't matter. Lift up your voice and praise. And whether you do it in the car or you do it here, but certainly when you're here, lift up your voice. Forget about what anybody else might think about what, how you sing. The person in front of you doesn't care. He can't hear you. Lift up your voice. Number three, give. Give 10%. I can tell you from experience and from those that I've been counseled with throughout the years that if you keep telling yourself that you'll eventually give 10% when you can afford it, the day will never come. Make the adjustments and give. Give weekly, give monthly, whenever you're paid, but give. And guys, I strongly believe that these things most often start out of obedience to God. It most often starts that we observe God's word and we say, okay, I'm going to do that because God says I should. But I'm going to tell you guys, it's not comfortable. It hasn't been with me in the past. It's not easy, though. It feels like practice. It feels tough. I can testify to you that God will bless you and your heart will change over time. It will truly become that you are attending church every week, that you're singing every song, and you're giving out of the abundance of your heart. If you haven't reached to the point where it's overflowing from the abundance of your heart, then keep practicing. Keep working at it. Keep plugging in and watching how God is working in your life or those around you. At some point, you will see it. And you will feel it. And you'll know it's worth it. I'm not saying that you'll be blessed on this side of heaven. I I don't know. I know a lot of preachers when they say this that you'll be blessed if you do it I don't know I have no idea if you'll be blessed on this side of heaven but here's something I do know if you will open your eyes and open your ears and see you will see him working I can promise that be under his word be with the bride of Christ be connecting and doing life with others that are doing life with you here in the church or other believers. And you will see him at work. I promise you that. I'm going to invite the band, the band to make their way back up. We're almost finished. But God is faithful to his promises. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be moved. That's the hope that we have. That's the freedom we have here on 4th of July. We celebrate his faithfulness.
We celebrate that Jesus in his sacrifice, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, went beyond behind the curtain for, for us once and for all. Not in symbolic way, it wasn't symbolic, in an ultimate way, so that we can trust him and we can inherit the promises fully and, and, and finally that were given to Abraham. So I would just say this. Make your hope in the God that loves you eternally. He has, he has all power. He has all knowledge. He has all wisdom. And he knows you. And he invites you to come and receive his grace. Receive his forgiveness. To bring to him all of your needs, all of your imperfections. your rebellion and receive from him his his grace his cleansing his forgiveness his inheritance as sons and daughters of the living God